0: Joe's Pub in Manhattan is preparing to host a one-person show from trans actor Becca Blackwell. They themselves and Schmirm deals with sexuality, gender, family, identity, and child abuse, all in what's described as laugh-out-loud fashion. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Becca Blackwell it's our guest on this week's show. Becca, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure, George. Let's start with the title of sure. this show. They themselves and Shmurm. Yes.
1: Explain that title. Uh, it, it's based kind of on the concept of me, myself, and I. And um, since I go by the pronoun they, I thought they, themselves and shmurm. And shmurm is kind of the sound that people make when they're not sure of my gender because, you know, I got this fuzzy mustache and my name's Becca. And it makes people kind of go, shmurm, shmurm. <laughs> like, you know. And I, I kind of enjoy watching them squirm all over the place because i think if i have to walk down in my body and feel those things why not someone have the same experience <laughs> trying to figure me out as i how frequently does that happen uh not as much i think anymore because i i feel like you know at passing months with taking testosterone you kind of look more and more like a man so um but i don't i don't take a heavy dose but i I still think having the name Becca makes people very confused. Now, uh,
0: is your name Rebecca? Yes. Mm-hmm. When did you change to Becca?
1: Oh, my whole life. It's very, you know, my parents did that thing that I think most parents do, where they give you one name and they want to call you another. Uh, it was because my, um, my they, I was named after both my grandmothers. So my mom's mom was Rebecca and my dad's mother was Revae. So my name was Rebecca Reve. But they always called me Becca since I was a, like I was adopted to them, but that was what the the they've always called me that so
0: when did you decide to use the pronoun they well,
1: I don't think I really ever um I'm of a certain age, George <laughs> um where i didn't really know about this concept or even um idea that you could uh i mean I had known of people transitioning. I knew very little about trans men or people transitioning from female to male. I knew plenty of trans women. I mean, I've been in New York over almost twenty five years and and being in the queer community, you know I mean, I used to bartend and a lot of our, you know, customers in the gay bars were trans women as well as every other kind of person. But I didn't have a lot of experience seeing trans men and I think the only thing I ever saw was like Annie Sprinkle's lover Les Nichols doing a documentary on getting a penis implant, I think, in 94. And I remember thinking, whoa, if that's the option, I think I'll... Because it just seemed kind of, like, really intense and strange. And it looked um, not... I think I had such a um, messed-up view of what things were supposed to look like, what penises look like, or any of those things. So I I definitely judged it kind of in a way that, you know, looking back at it, it wasn't very kind or healthy, but at the same time, we are um, conditioned to think that there's only uh, certain ways to be, male or female, or, uh, you know, if you have a genital, it has to be perfect or something. So I never really thought about using uh, the pronoun because I don't think I ever wanted to be a he. Uh, luckily, I was uh, surrounded by a really strong women and queer women and it didn't seem anything wrong with being a she i just never felt that i felt comfortable in that but at the same time there was a part of me that never wanted to be a he because i didn't think men were that much better
0: (laughs) now that said do you identify yourself as a trans
1: man or just transgender i know it's like i get you know like when you start putting labels on people it gets really uh disheartening because there's a part of me that never wants to give up the roots of being like a a lesbian it's like all this kind of like you know trigger warning of what it is and i think that's um the fluidity of what everyone's kind of tooting of like we should have that i feel the same way like there's days i wake up and i feel like very grounded in my like bull dyke roots and then there's days that i you know i want to dress up like judy garland and really Mm -hmm. you know kind of the inner homo in me you know and then everything in between that. How old were
0: you when you realized you weren't like all of the other girls, if you will? Oh,
1: I think my whole life. I My dad told me uh, once uh, uh, that he thought maybe my brother was gay because I was so masculine. Huh. Um, I, I was asking God because I was adopted to a rather kind of a conservative religious family. You grew up in the Midwest? Yes, in Ohio. And I uh, I would be... I would lay at night before I go to bed and I would pray for my penis. And I think my mom, when I was that young, kind of would be like, okay, you know, and as you get older, it becomes from cute and everything to like, okay, you need to, you need to stop this right now. It's kind of like, it's uncomfortable. And I think that's with a lot of children at a certain age and gender, when they start deviating from the norm, it makes everyone uncomfortable. Even if you were this like really, you know, you do you kind of beautiful family, you get worried about your child having to interact in the cold, dark world and that they're going to come up against a lot of conflict if they're truly authentic to themselves. But I think that it's not just in gender, it's in anything you really do. If you're deeply authentic to who you are... It does challenge people because I don't think a lot of people know how to do that for themselves. You know, in in a lot of what we do for work and what we do to get by, a lot of it is really uh, programmed into fear and um, capitalism. And to like deviate from that uh, is really radical. And to like truly accept yourself for however and whoever you are is the most, in my mind, the most radically queer thing you can do.
0: So, what was your upbringing like?
1: Uh I mean I would you know it was uh it was unique, um, which I didn't really realize it was unique until I got older and like talked to enough therapists that they were like, Yeah, that's kind of like not normal. What's an example of not normal uh you know my father did some uh he was a professor at o s u but he also did a lot of kind of flying around different countries and stuff and you know, he took us took our family to South Africa actually during which the apartheid was happening at the time and you know, I saw a lot of things that I kind of didn't quite understand as a child. Uh so yeah, there was just kind of this like very different way I was experiencing the world and seeing a lot of things. Um I also kind of stopped going to high school for a while and went and lived on a mission field in Brazil when I was like sixteen and so I had a very just different experience. And, you know, there was some, like, sexual abuse and stuff like that that it's... I think it's hard to, like... I don't like to use specifics and talk about that because... Mm-hmm. Uh, you were molested by a priest? Is yes, that right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have... There's plenty of stories like that to go around. Um, I think it's just hard um, because some people are still living and, and to, like, bring things up. I always feel very protective of people um, because... As much as it's my story to tell, I, I try to keep it um, not necessarily about specifics, but about how I kind of, like, came out of it, as opposed to someone did this or this is what happened to me. There are things in my life I've probably done that if people were to, like, really want to, like, take me to the ringer, I would uh, I would be, uh, like, probably surprised and also hurt that I did hurt someone like that. I mean, I don't think... I, I, I'm i pretty positive I've never done anything, like, on that level, but I also feel... Um, I want to be respectful to that privacy.
0: How much are you putting yourself out there in this show?
1: Uh, the only way this show really works is if I um, am 100% uh, like open-hearted. like Because I do talk about things like that, but I, I kind of use it in a real sense of humor. So to like make things really funny in that way without kind of... Um, taking away from the gravity of what it is, there is a way of lifting out of it. And How uh, do you make being molested funny? <laughs> well, I think the opening line I say is, if you weren't being molested in the 70s, well, then you weren't cute.
0: Uh, okay. <laughs> because
1: <laughs> I do remember a young person, uh, in a group of us who was sad that he wasn't being molested, and that was because he was fat. And I figured out at a young age that if I started getting fat, I would stop being being molested, and and that is kind of a tactic that I used. And then... You know, then I had all the like trappings of feeling like a fat kid growing up where you never kind of lose that feeling of feeling insecure about your body, no matter what it looks like. But I also believe, you know, um, I wouldn't give up anything that's happened to me or whatever because it made me who I am right now. And I as hard as it is, there's a part of me that does love who I am and who I'm becoming.
0: Are your parents still alive? My father is. And has he seen the show? No, he has not. <laughs> what would he think of the
1: show? Uh, I think he would feel a lot of things. I think he'd appreciate uh, maybe my talent. Uh, I think he would feel a little fear of, like, am, is he implicated in things? History is in the eye of the beholder. So how I remember my childhood is different than how he remembers his childhood. It is different than how my brother... Like, if if there was, like, two more people in this room... And we spent this half hour together, all four of us would have a very different interpretation of what we saw and experienced, even if we were all here. So uh, I do honor and understand that. Um, but I also, like for the first time, I think, in my life, want to have agency over my own storytelling. What's your relationship with your dad? Is he accepting? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's weird. Um, my dad was actually probably the most cool out of all my family about me being queer. And then in me being trans in this way, um, uh, he just, I think maybe because of his insane weird life that he lived, he was exposed to a lot of different kind of stuff. So he was able to kind of wrap his head around that a little easier. Um, I think there's also a part of him that feels a little bit like a loner. And I have the same feeling. And I definitely believe in a sense of destiny. Like, you know, we all found each other as family members, even though I think all four of us in our family were all f- kind of different in a way. So, no matter what happened or what kind of um, pain we feel or felt from each other, there's a, a reason for all of it.
0: Not many people can say this, but you had a love affair in a mental ward?
1: (laughs) I didn't. I I think I had. um, (laughs) I didn't have my love affair in a mental ward. I think they're conflated. I was in a mental ward. And then right after that part in the show, I talk about my first (laughs) love. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I was in love with this woman in the mental ward named Tina. Tina. Who I don't talk about this. I, I think she was in the original uh, part of the show. She was um, a very fiery woman, and I remember thinking she was one of the toughest people I ever met. She, uh, I remember she was so mad at her boyfriend that she um, took one of the curling irons, because the curling irons we got in the metal ward only had like a uh, cord that was maybe about eight or nine inches, so you couldn't try and hang yourself with it. And I remember her putting um, lotion on his initials with his tattoo and trying to burn it off. What was going on in life at the time that you were institutionalized? Basically, as I got older in that time, there was just a lot of darkness in my family. Um, It's hard to want to use specifics uh, just in terms of uh, for my own... Um, not bringing up too much, but I, at that point, and my mother had been, uh, sick a lot, uh, with cancer. And I think I felt, um, our family was very split off at that point. I think my brother had left the house. So it was just kind of me with my parents and they weren't really at all together and they were lost kind of in their own, like inter fighting and very distant. Um, and there was a lot of kind of like tension in a lot of different ways in our family. Um, and I just hated being there and um, it seemed like the best option to a 13-year-old to just kind of kill yourself mm-hmm. because um, I felt like I was causing my family more strife because there was a lot of, um, I got caught telling kind of some of our family secrets, and I got in a lot of trouble, even though what the family secrets were about were very hurtful to me, and um, it, for me that took it as like a an issue of, their reputation was more important than the well-being of myself. And so I think I took it as, like, a your only job is to be a kid, not necessarily to, like... And I think that's how I took it at the time.
0: What part of the show do you like performing most?
1: <laughs> oh, man, that's hard. Uh, it's a really hard show to perform. Um, my director constantly has to tell me, this show isn't, about, isn't for you anymore. It's for people who n- need to see it which always frustrates me because then I'm like, why am I doing it? But um, I really do like the beginning um, when I kind of start the show really like kind of insane in this way of like really stylized uh, poses and saying all these kind of like confrontational things about being molested and all this stuff and then stopping it and saying, just kidding, wouldn't that be awful if I did that for an hour? <laughs> and seeing their little faces be like, shoo, um, and then really engaging with them. And there is a moment when I breathe and just take in the audience that for me as a performer and a person, I think, that feels love. <laughs> it feels really good to like take everyone in that moment and that realizing that we're going to kind of go on a ride together.
0: How cathartic
1: has this whole experience been for you? Beyond yes. anything I thought. I really did make this kind of on a dare. Uh, my friend Michelle Matlock, who is in Circus Amok with me, um, who went on to do in Cirque du Soleil uh, had wrote a, a play called "The Mammy Project," um, kind of the history of the Mammy and like her experience uh, as a black woman like in the acting and world in general, and very more nuanced than that. But I remember uh, when she wrote it, you know we were good friends at the time, and she kept telling me, "You need to write your own story because you 'll never see yourself on stage until you write it. Um, and she was like, that's what prompted her to make it because she would just, you know, here she was like a Shakespeare trained actress and she was just getting sent out Aunt Jemima commercials. And she was just kind of like, what the hell? And um, I think that was a lot of... I always would. I mean, we're still friends, but I would always hear that kind of in back of my mind when I was really struggling with, like, I couldn't even go on an audition for something because I wouldn't. I was never seen as a woman, and I was never seen as a man. And the entertainment industry, surprisingly, really doesn't know how to deal with uh, <laughs> people like that. All the way back from the early '90s when I started trying, and even to today, I think the industry knows how to deal with fully. Transitioned people, but they don't really know uh, quite what to do with, you know, quote-unquote queer. So what roles would you go for? Uh, I really didn't ever audition for traditional anything. Um, the, the only reason I was able to keep in this business uh, was that playwrights or directors would... Playwrights would either write roles for me and, and or directors would cast me specifically in roles kind of as like, a, I don't care... I want this part played by Becca. And that is literally how I stayed afloat in the city making work. Um, And I don't, to this day, know how I did it. (laughs) I understand that it's a
0: dream to play Stanley in A Streetcar (laughs) Named Desire.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, I think any of the um, American canons, uh, you know, Tennessee Williams writes these men that are fraught with kind of all the... Nuances of all the feelings. I think because he was writing it from a gay man's perspective and, you know, those relationships, I think, were usually him and his lovers, you know, all the way down to, like, Brick and Maggie and, like, all those things that were kind of, like... And I, as a queer person, you know, you can see into that, which is... I'm always into playing those.
0: (laughs) How do you think artists like yourself can get people to see beyond the masculine and feminine and embrace the in-between,
1: if you will? I think if there's anything, I would just tell anyone to go uh, sit in nature for about an hour and you would see kind of both of them happening at the same time. Um, It is completely within our bodies and everything it does to be performing and experiencing both masculine and feminine on every level at all times. Um, You can do it every day when you wake up and look at the sun and and then when you see the moon. I mean, that in itself is masculine and feminine. Um, So I think it's really easy, but we are a society, uh, specifically Western, that's really um, driven by a different set of uh, respect and ideals. And so you're going to have to really fight against all your assumptions about... Everything And I think any of your limitations to believe or see any of that is a lot of your own uh, lack of freedom in your own body. And um, I know that's hard to hear because it was hard for me to even hear. But I noticed that when I was kind of like releasing of feeling controlled by what others thought I should or shouldn't be doing was when I found the most freedom.
0: That said, over the past few years, we've seen transgender representation in mainstream film and TV increase. Do you think that can dilute the artistic
1: expression that comes from the trans community in any way? Um, I think in any community that is marginalized and is uh, slowly percolating up into a mainstream, um, it it really uh, is um, important who's telling the stories Um you know, right now we have a really uh, exciting surge in, like, African-American stories being told by African-Americans, which is incredible. And you start to see that in the shows you're seeing and, and the writing that is going into it. Um, and, like, you know, also in the Latin and not as much in Asian communities. But I think that's just, like, it's a slow burn in the entertainment industry to, like, anything. Um, I think trans is kind of hot right now. Um and I ain't going to lie because as much as I might be a Taoist, I'm also a person living in capitalist world. So, um, am I going to say no to things that pay me money to be trans? No. Um, (laughs) but, uh, it's something I think to be wary of, I guess, in a, in a way, but also at the same time, I'm not, um, I mean, I think it's hard for you to ask people to say no to something that's going to pay them money. Um, I know I'm in a little better place than I used to be, but I said yes to a lot of things that were offering me five hundred dollars or four hundred dollars because I needed that money um and would I want to go back and do those pieces again? Probably not, but um, so I'm not ever one to like say someone should or shouldn't do anything because that's that's your body, your journey, so it's not up to me to make those calls, but I know that that it is important who's telling the story and who is performing those stories.
0: Earlier, you referenced Circus Amok. Yes. For those unfamiliar, what is
1: Circus Amok? Uh, circus Amok is this beautiful sociopolitical queer circus that has been performing in New York, I believe, outdoors since 89, uh, all the way up to the present, um, uh, helmed by the beautiful and genius Jennifer Miller and uh, musical direction by Jenny Romaine. Um, and basically saved my life. I was their truck driver for a few years, and they were short a performer one year, and Jennifer was like, I hear you used to be a performer, would you like to do this, but you still need to drive the truck? And um, I was like, absolutely. And it was was kind of what really, for me, put me in motion with um, actually... Doing the kind of performance and being around the kind of people that I've always wanted to be around as an artist. They were, it was a diverse group. It was all queer. It was, um, uh, it was kind of full of beautiful misfits. Um, making activism art that was going into neighborhoods, um, uh, prosperous financially and not prosperous financially. The not Prosperous financial neighborhoods definitely had better food, in my mind, but um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we went around to all the different neighborhoods in New York and performed this circus, dealing with issues like police brutality and affordable housing and healthcare and you know the whole gamut of what was happening in New York City and the climate. And um, it was it was everything I could ever want, and uh, it was definitely uh, ten years of my life that I cherished.
0: Getting back to the here and now and Mm -hmm. your show, what does Corey Haim have to do with
1: it? (laughs) Oh, Corey. Uh, Corey Haim was the reason um, I... I, My partner, Aaron Markey, kept telling me, just write about what you want to talk about. And I really didn't know what I wanted to talk about because I felt like everything, uh, for me, the idea of writing a solo show was just... I find them to be kind of annoying and didactic and everything. So... Uh, I remember sitting down at my computer and going down a a, a YouTube matrix of, like, uh, sexual abuse, uh, Hollywood, Illuminati. And I came upon this uh, weird PR documentary called Me, Myself, and I that Corey Haim and his handlers did. And I believe, like, 88 or 89. And it was... The kind, by the end of it, I was, like, curled up in a ball, like, holding my dog, being like, what did I watch? (laughs) What was that? And why? Why did someone let that happen? And who were his handlers? And, like, that was insane. And this was before, like, a YouTube, uh, like, thing. Like, this was, like, this thing went straight to video. that was kind of not even a movie. It was just this thing that someone did. And I had never seen something that was so uncomfortable making, but I also, like, really identified with his kind of, like, weird way of, like, uh, hiding, like, sexual abuse and drug use and all these things and the whole acting world and how screwed up it is and how it kind of takes people and just twists them up and, and there was so much I identified with it. And then I, I basically uh, copy-pasted the link, sent it to my friend Joe Pangalo, and I was like, I don't know what this means, but... And I don't, and I didn't even know her that well. But I basically was like, I don't know, I'm following my instincts, and they are to send you this video and let's do something. And then she and I just kind of hung out for like eight, nine months. Um, She was kind of this like writing partner that I threw ideas off of. She kind of she helped me write the video for it. And um, when it got to where I had to put it up for the final first showing at Wild Project, she was kind of like, you need a director. I've kind of, my work here is done. Like, I'm, I'm, she's also an artist, makes her own work, but I think she was like, you need to pass this on. And so that's really what it was. And then using the template of me, myself, and I just date themselves from Tremor.
0: The actor Corey Haim died in 2010. Would you have liked Corey to have seen your show?
1: I don't know him, honestly, obviously, well enough to know if he would have found it enlightening or if he would have found it, uh, I don't. I don't think it was offensive because it was literally my story. Kind of using that concept of his. I hopefully he would have found the tongue and cheek in it, um, and would have seen that uh, my show is also about being vulnerable and stuff. And I think part of me would have hoped he could see it, and and I wished he could have shown really who he was more and being more vulnerable. And I think that was. Um, something I think was really hard for him to do because he was very wrapped up in wanting to get back in the business because that business does chew you up and spit you out. Who are your role models? Ooh, Uh, I guess uh, Peggy Shaw. Um, She was kind of like my first butch actor uh, I ever saw. I saw Menopausal Gentleman, I think, in 95. Um, I remember seeing Diamanda Gallas and thinking she was a genius. Maya Angelou, I remember reading I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, and it completely changed the way I even have thought. Of, I'd never read about anyone being molested, and that it kind of changed. It, like, definitely started to rewire my brain and how to, like, even have a voice to it. Um, oh, gosh. I know I'm going to forget people that are really important. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, for me, I... I remember reading Black Boy by Richard Wright. I'd never heard anyone speak of, like, pain and anger like that, Um, which was funny because I read that right before I tried to kill myself. So I remember thinking, but, um, oh, man. Um, Do you see yourself as a role model? Oh, please, no. That's too much pressure. I'm a bad boy, you know. Like, (laughs) uh, I probably drink way too much wine than I should. Um, I like to smoke weed, you know. I don't know if I'm someone that, you know, I, I... I've, it's taking me everything in me not to uh, curse like a sailor today. <laughs> I don't know if you're allowed to use the F-bombs. No, you play. are not. I didn't think so. <laughs> I've been really trying, George. Um, yeah, I wouldn't put me as a role model. I would definitely uh, put me as a weird uncle that you could call if you were in trouble. <laughs> and I wouldn't tell anyone. And I'd try and bail you out if I could.
0: What question are you most tired of hearing? Uh, what's going
1: on down there? <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, Gosh, I don't know uh, are, Is your transition complete? Are you done? Did, is is this as far as you want to go? Um, are you going to change your name? You know I think it, it, it makes people a little weirded out That I haven't changed my name um, But I, I'm 44 years old so I had never heard anyone named Becca When I was a kid And so it wasn't this uh, very feminine name And so I think it was... Um, I can never remember. I can never get these t v shows straight. He's either my so called life or the other one. <laughs> there is a character in it named Becca, and that was when I feel like five years after that show came out, all of a sudden, there was like these like people who were like fifteen years younger than me, all named becca um and I think it takes people back when they hear my name's Becca, and I'm just kinda like, it is what it is?
0: yeah, there's guys <laughs> named Lynn and Kelly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> What question do you like
1: answering the most? Uh, (laughs) Well, since being on testosterone, I just love answering questions. (laughs) I love telling you my opinions about things and uh, how I could see the world being a better place. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on what the context of the question is and who's asking it, you know. I would hope I'd try to answer every question, especially from those I love. Because they're the ones who probably need to know the information the most.
0: (laughs) What has surprised you most in performing this one-person
1: show? Uh, How long it keeps going on. I really thought that I would just make this, I'd do a couple of showings of it, and then I would move on and do something else. Um, So the the lifespan of this. How long has it been now? Uh, The first time I performed it is, is full length, was October of 2015. And um it's changed a lot since then and in fact it'll change again for our showing in February because I just realized that it's 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 got it's had a lot of things added to it and it hasn't been retweaked, so it has it still has to like it, you know, if if it's me telling my story, it's in a constant state of flux, so it never kinda ends.
0: Well, tickets on sale now for that February 22nd showing That's at Joe's true. Pub, They Themselves and Schmurm. Yes. What a great word, Schmurm. Schmurm.
1: It is. It's like a nice, it uh, you know, it's a good New York Yiddish. <laughs> I don't know, I have to ask the foundation, but I think it's a good one. It's a schmear of gender. <laughs> Becca, thank you so much <laughs> for coming you, in. Thank you, George.
0: Becca Blackwell graces the stage at Joe's Pub in Manhattan with They Themselves and Schmurm on February 22nd. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. My name is George Boldarki. Thank you so much for listening.